phase is locked and ready to fire, sir. Illogical. Hello and welcome back. Floyd from Federation Radio here again. So I apologize for yesterday. I know it was uh, meant to be seven days in a row, but what can I say? I got very distracted yesterday, I ran out of time, and by the time I realized I hadn't actually recorded it, it was already 4am of the next day, and I was way too tired to watch an episode and record, so I'm doing it today, but don't worry, tomorrow I will do the Menagerie Parts 1 and 2, like promised, and then we'll have a week break until the following Wednesday, which tomorrow's Thursday, so it'll be a six-day break, but yeah, here we go with the Corbinite Maneuver, which, you know, it's a little different to how I remembered it. In my mind, this was actually the Romulan episode, but the Corbinite Maneuver is very much not the Romulan episode. It's a different episode. However, again, like I said last time, a very memorable one. I just forgot the name. Um, so this episode goes over... They're at... They don't really say which border of the Federation, and at this point, the Federation's borders are very ill-defined. We don't even really know what the Federation is properly yet. Other than Spock, we've seen very little evidence that the Federation is anything more than just Earth scientists and Earth colonies. You know, uh, the whole it being a Federation of alien worlds hasn't really been established. Although, we have pointed out a few times that the Federation's goals, and the ship in particular, the Enterprise goal, is to meet and explore alien life. So, you know, they're doing something. They're getting there. The idea of the Federation is slowly coming through. So... They're out mapping a sector of space. I'm not really sure where. One of the borders of the Federation, they're mapping out new space, which is something the Federation does a lot of, and it seems like it's a boring sort of thing. But they're doing it, because it's needed for their other ships. And suddenly they get stopped by <laughs> what I can only describe as a spinning three-dimensional cube that flashes lights. It, to me, as a 90s kid, reminds me a lot of the old screensavers on a lot of old-school Microsoft computers, like Microsoft XP and stuff had a lot of these weird, like, animated 3D objects that were supposed to be, like, ooh, so impressive. These days, it's almost laughable looking at the special effects they were doing, but, you know, it was a, it was a decent idea. I like the idea of not every ship has to have an engine and be recognisably, you know, the way that a human would do it. I actually kind of like and appreciate the fact that they went out of their way to create something different. They went out of their way to create, like, spinning cubes, and later on we see huge spherical ships that seem to be made of... I don't know how else to describe it other than, like, it's a huge sphere, and then they have these, like, mini half-spheres, with, like, a flat bottom coming off of the sphere itself. They almost look like bulbs coming out. Almost like light bulbs or something coming off the ship. And there's like little tunnels that connect them. It's it's an interesting design. Like Scotty and Spock basically both say from scanning it that they don't know how it moves. They really have no clue. It's so alien to them. Which is cool. I appreciate, you know, a sci-fi writer trying to go outside the box. Not every ship is going to be recognizable with an engine. Sometimes something is truly alien. It uses alien propulsion systems that we can't even recognize. And I think that's great. Anyway, they're scanning. The cube comes up. Starts following them around. and It doesn't let them pass. There's a guy on the bridge called Bailey. He is currently at the helm next to Sulu. 
And from what we can tell, the crew's tired. I, I feel like they're trying to show that they've been mapping out this region for a while now. Like, they're tired. McCoy is actually giving Kirk his medical, which, you know, you don't often see that, but he's giving him a medical checkup. And they're sort of chatting about the crew's readiness and how tired the crew all is and how they seem. And he says, don't worry, we'll have a stand down at some point soon. So it seems like they're, they've been running a while. Everyone's a bit on edge. Everyone's tired. But they're still doing their job. But Bailey's freaking out when the cube shows up. You know, Kirk was discussing with McCoy whether he promoted him too soon because Bailey sort of reminded him of a Kirk back when he was young. He had the same attitude, so he's sort of favoured him and promoted him perhaps before he was ready. Now, the cube shows up, keeps following him, Bailey freaks out and suggests that they shoot at it, and uh, Kirk just immediately shuts that down, like, no, we do not fire at alien life when we first see it, um, and tries to get them to communicate. Now, the cube doesn't communicate in any way, it just follows them. It doesn't seem to respond when they scan it, they can't pick up any form of warning, any communication at all. So, they end up trying to, at first, fly past it. Immediately, the cube blocks their way, doesn't let them pass, so Kirk gets called up by the bridge to be like, come up to the bridge, we got something weird. Kirk tries to get them to go past it, and then he tries to get them to reverse, and the cube just keeps following them. It follows them everywhere. It even follows them right up to warp... I think it's warp... Warp 3, I've written. I thought it was warp 2, but warp 3, I guess. Which is pretty impressive for a cube that they can't tell with a propulsion system on to be able to travel warp 3 is very impressive technology. As Spock says... I think they are superior and alien to our own technology. So, basically, they try and escape. Eventually, the cube starts releasing radiation that is, or could be lethal to the aliens on board, or to the humans on board. At first, it's not too bad, but it eventually ramps up to a point where Spock points out it's at lethal levels. At that point, Kirk gives the command to fire. The cube gets destroyed. Kirk immediately gets annoyed because when he says fire, Bailey kind of freezes up because he's been freaking out this whole time. He sort of freezes up and then Sulu has to lean over and press the firing button. And Kirk makes a comment to Bailey about how that was sluggish and tells the whole crew that we're going to run simulations until we get our efficiency up in a situation just like that. And he goes off and has a discussion with Spock and McCoy. And they start... They don't know what to do. Like, Kirk is having this discussion with them, like, what do I do? Do you suggest I go forward? Do we look more into this species, into their territory? Do we take this possible lethal encounter as a warning to leave? And Spock kind of gets a little annoyed at him and says, don't you ever get tired of the illogical attitude of asking questions when you already know what you're intending to do and these questions are pointless. And Kirk just kind of smiles and says, it's for my emotional security. Because, you know, Kirk's already decided. He's an explorer. He's going forward. He decided that before he asked Spock that question. And that's what he does. He just, I think he just likes messing with Spock. And he likes getting Spock's opinion. But they go forward. And this is when the sphere appears. It's basically a Death Star-sized superstructure, like I described before. A humongous spherical object with lots of mini-spheres on it. And what kind of looks like tunnels or cables connecting all the spheres. It's, it's a very interesting uh, ship, I guess you'd call it. We never really get to go on board it, and they're unable to scan it. 
because its technology is just so far beyond them, their scanners can't really tell them anything beyond its actual proportions. So we don't get to learn whether there's a crew on board or it's autonomous or what it is, but we do get a message then from the ship. Well, the, the, I guess it's a ship, yeah, because it does come into view. It's not a station, it's a ship. So it comes into view and it ends up sending a message apparently through the navigation system somehow because it goes through the earpiece of Bailey and not through Uhura, which is kind of unusual, but again, alien technology works differently. Uhura ends up filtering it through the communication system so they can talk. And basically the ship offers them... Well, says that they are violent, they are being scanned, all of their systems start going haywire, says they are being scanned, and eventually, and not long after, a few moments after, he says, you will be destroyed, you did not take our warning, will we, to heart, you are a barbaric species, and you will continue to push into our territory, for our own protection, we must destroy you. So, <laughs> Kirk obviously tries to communicate with them, <coughs> sorry, tries to communicate with the whole you know, we are on a mission of peace, we're just here to explore alien culture, it all gets shot down. A very loud buzzing sound goes through the bridge. The Festus ship, that's its name, the ship Festus, says that it will no longer be taking any communication from them, and any hostile action will result in its imme- in the Enterprise's immediate destruction. Kirk doesn't know what to do. The whole crew kind of starts freaking out, most of them stay calm, but you can tell they're all kind of silently eyeing Kirk, like, what are you going to do? We need to get out of this. And things get bad. You know, for a few moments there, things looking real tense. Festus basically gives them, and I will say, I liked this. This was a very, they are more powerful and superior, but they're also kind of um, friendly. You know, Well, not friendly, but um, what do you call it? Compassionate, I guess would be a better word. Where they say, you, we see in your ship database that there are many deities, gods or deities in your database. We will give you ten earth minutes to pray and find resolution in whatever deity you find most comforting. Which, you know, I'm not religious, but I do appreciate that. Like, most species you run into in Star Trek, if they're hostile, are just hostile. They'll just shoot at you. They'll just attack you. Or they're like the Romulans where it's all deception. Now, this was kind of compassionate. This was, you know, we are going to kill you, but you're outmatched. There's nothing you can do. Take ten minutes. Center yourself. If you have any beliefs, if you have any spiritual beliefs, take this time to breathe and accept that your life is over. Now, it's not great. Obviously, you'd rather live than die. But at the same time, if you're going to die, I mean, think about the Borg and all these other horrible species. Like, there are way worse ways to go. It sounds like he's going to make it quick and he's giving you time to accept your fate, which is, again, more than what most give you. Now, obviously, they're not going to accept their fate. It's Kirk. So after a while, they determine there's nothing they can do. They can't use the engines. They can't use their weapons. There's there's no way out of this. And, yeah, well, Spock says to Kirk, logically, this is checkmate. Just like chess, sometimes there are no more moves left to do. We are, unfortunately, in checkmate. And Kirk sort of walks around, and after a few minutes, I think it's at the eight-minute mark, he sort of says, no, poker. Poker, not chess, Mr. Spock. And then he calls, well, he doesn't call, he tells Uhura to open a channel, and he tells the ship Festus that they have a 
A secret weapon that has been put on all Earth ships for the last two centuries that is not put into the computer system that the Fester ship might want to know about. Called the Corbinite Maneuver. Well, the Corbinite substance or the Corbinite weapon, something like that he says. The Corbinite Maneuver is more referring to the gamble of him pretending that there is a Corbinite weapon on board when there isn't. He calls it the Corbinite weapon and basically says it's like a mirror for destruction. Anything that hits the ship will be reversed at the one who fired it. And that is nothing that he can do about it, so he would suggest that the Fest does not fire for its own sake. Now, the Fester ship pretends not to care. Like, at this point, Spock also has managed to not quite hack in, but he's managed to work out how to get a visual on screen of what the alien looks like. And we see a sort of distorted image, almost as if the camera was underwater and the water was moving, of a very tall alien who has grey skin, big, like, bald head with kind of... If you can try and imagine, like, a brain slightly bigger than a human skull, almost to the point that the skull has grown larger or is being pushed out. Not ridiculous, like the first episode with those huge butthead guys, but, you know, more like a human that has a more just oversized brain. And big bug eyes, so... They see it. The Fester ship sort of acknowledges, you saw my image, I don't care, you have five minutes. And that turns out to be fake. Because he didn't know about the Corbinite weapon, he couldn't be certain about the Corbinite weapon. The five minutes run out, Sulu keeps counting down, everyone's sort of on the bridge, feeling like they're going to die. Even Scotty comes up to the bridge from engineering, because really, what can he do down there? There's nothing more for him to do. So he comes up to the bridge to accept his fate. Same as Dr. McCoy, he's there too. Uh, Bailey, at this point, has a pretty much panic attack or mental breakdown, whatever you want to call it. He starts freaking out, saying, you know, we're all going to die. Why is everyone just sitting here? Why are we reading counters? Are you robots or men? <laughs> like, you know, he's just, he's losing it. And who could blame him, honestly? I mean, I know officers are supposed to stay calm, but there are certain situations like this, where it is truly hopeless and there's nothing you can do, where... I think it's acceptable that someone might lose their composure a little. After all, humans are very emotional and, well, sometimes emotions overrun you. Can't always control them. We are not Vulcans. So he is dismissed from the bridge. And this kind of thing, this is sort of the side plot going on, is about Bailey and how McCoy and Kirk were arguing earlier about did you promote him too early, did you not, is he suited to this job, is he not... And here he is in a stressful situation, losing his shit, so this kind of seems like perhaps Kirk was wrong, he wasn't ready. Kirk dismisses him. Now, and tells the Doctor to escort him to his quarters. The Doctor does, he calmly, you know, he touches his shoulder and is like, let's go, Bailey. That's kind of a sad thing, but, um, you know, Bailey leaves the bridge, probably thinking he's going to die in a minute, but the five minutes run out, Festus doesn't shoot. Then a small vessel, a very small version of the Festus. It's got like four little cylinders on it. Not cylinders, uh, how do I describe it? It looks like, think about a metal ring, like a round ring that you would put on someone's finger, except at four different points on it, it has little spheres, and they're sort of glowing, they're flashing, doing different things, and again, can't tell where the propulsion system is, but it looks like a little ring ship of spheres pops out, and it basically, they get a communication from Baylock, who says he is aboard the small vessel. They are not to do anything hostile, or that small ship will destroy them, as it more than has the capability. And now, they are going to be tractor-beamed to a detention planet, 
where they will go down to the planet and live out their lives somewhere where they can live. And then their ship will be destroyed. So, completely, once again, Enterprise is powerless. It is dragged away. Kirk and they start looking around like they're not looking forward to living in an internment camp. That's not going to happen. But Kirk gets the idea that this little ship might get cocky. He doesn't think it's as powerful as it makes out. It tractor beams them. And after a while, it pulls ahead a little too far away. So it's going faster than the Enterprise is. Which means the range on the tractor beam is extended, which weakens it just enough for the ship to full ball its engines backwards to try and test out how strong this tractor ship is. Now, the ship breaks. Well, it doesn't break, but the the tractor beam basically fails. Its engines start going over the top, or whatever its engines are. Its power systems, from what they can scan, start going over the top. The Enterprise suffers some damage, because it is also pulling against an immovable force by the feel of it, so their ship is straining. But not as much as the small ship. The small ship gives out. Tractor beam shuts down. It tries to send a message to the Festus and to anyone else that the Enterprise has escaped its tractor beam and that its systems are down, including its life support, and that the crew needs help. But Uhura determines that because of the power problems the small ship's having, that signal wasn't very strong. It's almost certain the Festus didn't pick it up and the signal is getting weaker, which means... Very likely, nobody realises that they have escaped other than that small ship. But then Kirk does something that I really appreciate it, because this is something I'd like to see more from our actual leadership. Because everyone's got words, everyone pretends that they have principles, everyone talks about principles, but very few people actually live by them. Now Kirk, and I did write down, there's a quote that he wrote here, or that he said here. He said... Let's go towards their ship. This isn't the quote, but he says, Let's go towards their ship. Engines at whatever he says. Impulse towards the ship and says, We are going to go aboard. Doctor, Bailey, you're with me. Spock, you stay here in case this goes wrong. You're in charge to get the ship out of here. And when he's questioned, like, everyone's looking at him like, Really? We were about to be in turn. Like, let's get out of here. Kirk turns and says, This is an opportunity to see what our high-sounding words actually mean. And that is a brilliant quote, because he's right. The Federation is out here to help people. They're meant to be a humanitarian organization. They're meant to meet alien cultures and do what they can to be friends with them. That is meant to be their goal. Now, so far, all they've done is destroy a ship and resist the rest. They haven't actually done much communicating. Now, granted, most of that is because the other aliens haven't let them, but this is their opportunity. The aliens are no longer in a superior position. What do they do? Are they men of principle? Will they go help them? Or will they fire on them and be, you know, dishonorable or whatever you want to call it, cowardly? Do they just escape and leave these aliens to die and pretend that they care while they actually don't? No. Kirk says, this is an opportunity to see what our high-sounding words mean. Something that in real life a lot of people could uh, take lessons from. A lot of nations and people like to put out these high-standing ideals of we stand for this and we stand for that, but... Realistically, it's not. It's virtue signaling. They say they stand for it. They'll change their Facebook profile, but they don't do anything for it. They don't care about the actual issue. They don't change their life in any way, and they don't try and really help in any way. I'm not going to blame people for that, but, like, don't pretend you care and make out like you advocate for something or support something if you don't. You know, it's just the hypocrisy of it. It's what makes people mistrust you and not take you seriously. You have to actually... Stand up for principles that you believe in. And Kirk shows that here. He goes to the transporter room. They transport across. 
and they see that grey alien, except the alien's not moving. That alien is a fake. He is completely fake. It is just a puppet sitting in front of a desk, or sitting on a chair and a desk. And then they hear a voice from behind a curtain. A sort of, a strange voice. It, okay, I have to say, out of the story for a moment. This episode, there's a child here. In the next room, there is a child. I'll just describe, he's a child. He's meant to be an alien. They sort of try to make him a bit bald. He's got very red, stringy hair, but it's almost like a little bit, kind of in the way that you would imagine like an almost newborn baby, like a two or three month old baby might have. Very light hair. It's not very thick. It's on basically a bald head. Except this alien, you sort of get the feeling that it's much older. Like this is not a baby. This is a much older alien who is physically just not very impressive. Basically, they are, to me, I would say a one-year-old. And they're small. Now, the thing that's weird, and I wanted to go out of the episode for a minute for, this child is moving his lips and talking. However, it's very obvious that they've cut his voice lines because you're not hearing a child's voice. You're hearing a man a full-grown man, and it's obvious it's like some kind of, it almost seems like a narrator voice, probably speaking into a mic off-camera somewhere, and then trying to lip-sync it, but it doesn't quite sync, and it feels really, it almost feels like watching an anime in the 90s when they didn't quite get the lip-syncing correct for the dubs, and the lips would keep moving after a sentence was over, like, it was very strange, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't bad. I think that I, I get what they were trying to do. This is a superior alien in every way technologically, but they are short. They are in stature, a species that a human could probably throw around in hand-to-hand combat. Kirk could probably take 15 of these people. But their technology is such that it makes the whole Federation seem inferior. I kind of like that. I like that interesting, like, not every alien has to be big and strong. Not every alien is a Klingon, or not every alien is a human that has physical prowess. Sometimes they're small, and they use technology to get themselves an advantage, and turns out it can be better. I like that they tried to show a truly alien culture here, like something that is so different to humanity, both in technology and stature. But anyway, it, he introduces himself, he says, I am Balok. And then he offers them a drink and says, I'm sorry to have deceived you, Captain, but I had to know what your real intentions were. <laughs> because it turns out this whole time, all of this has basically been a ruse for him and this species, I guess, to try and understand the intentions of the people coming. Now, I don't think it was all a ruse. I think he really did have the power to destroy them if they threatened him and seemed hostile. But it seems this is his way of testing. Like, he read in their databanks that they are good people trying to explore, and he's like, your databanks, he even says to Kirk, your memory banks could have been falsified. I had to see for myself. So he put them in a position, like I said, a position where they had to choose where they stood and whether they believe in their principles and morality. You know, are they going to just let the aliens sit there and die when they think the life support systems are down? Do they fire? Or do they do what they do, where they come aboard to help? At which point they realize the life support systems are not down, everything is working completely fine, and this was all just a ruse to see what they would do, like I said. So, you know, and he's happy, because his suspicions were correct. They came aboard to help. And he sort of laughs and says, there is no crew, I run this whole ship by myself. Now, I will say, he doesn't really answer is the Festus man. That's what I was getting at before. The Festus is huge. 
this little ship broke away and he says, I run the Festus from this small ship. I don't know what that means though. I don't know if that means that he is one of the many ships on board and there's many little ships like this where they have small crews and it's all pretty autonomous. Or whether he truly runs that whole sphere by himself. It's kind of, it, it goes a little unanswered. I mean, in the end, they end up deciding, you know, he likes them, they share a drink, and he says, our people are actually very alike, you would might be surprised, Captain. I suggest, because I've been quite lonely on this ship, that you send me one of your people. And, you know, Bailey volunteers, because, of course, Bailey's trying to prove himself at this point, and he's very interested in seeing the face of the unknown, and now he wants to get to know it more. So they suggest a... You know, a bit of an exchange where Bailey will go aboard, he'll spend who knows how long aboard, learning about their culture, their technology, their people, and teaching these people about human culture and technology and people. And Kirk says, when he comes back, I'll have a better officer and a better understanding and hopefully a new species to be friends with. And they all kind of laugh and the episode ends. It's, you know, it's a basic episode and unfortunately... I've always found it unfortunate anyway. They never get touched on again. This species, I even looked them up on the Beta Canon website to see if they came up in any books and stuff. And there's one book. There's one book from the 80s that talks about Bailey's adventures aboard um, the Festus with the First Federation, as the species calls itself. But um, that's it. Nothing. There's no reference in any other episodes. There's no other books. There's not even comic strips. There's, there's nothing. For a species that had such a fascinating ship design, I'm a little disappointed that it didn't get more love. Like, I would have liked to have seen them come back, and, I mean, I doubt it at this point, but I hope it comes back one day. Even in modern Trek, as, we won't go into my opinion of lower Trek, but like, modern Trek. But, uh, even in modern Trek, I would like to see it come back. It would be cool to see these weird shaped ships coming back. I don't want an explanation of how it works. I'd just like to see them come back and show that, like, yeah, we're here. We're still friends with the Federation. We're still around. I'd like to see them go back and touch on this. But we'll see. Anyway, uh, that was basically the whole episode. I always found it memorable because, you know, for one thing, Kirk bluffs, which is kind of amazing. I always enjoy a good captain bluffing his way out of a situation. It takes... It takes real balls of steel to bluff your way out of a situation like that with a superior species that could kill you in an instant. Yeah, and he does it. Now, as for my little notes in this episode, I didn't make many, but there was a couple things. Like, when the ship got scanned by the Festus, they turned off most of the non-essential systems, including the galley and all the food shit, all the food stuff. Yeoman Rand shows up on the bridge halfway through this, like, timer to die with a uh, a little flask full of coffee. And everyone kind of looks confused, and Spock says, I thought we turned the galley systems off. And she says, oh yes, I used a phaser to heat up the coffee, sir. <laughs> and you know what? It's a very minor thing, but I appreciate that. I love that Yeoman Rand, in the middle of this we-could-die-in-five-minute section, decided that there was one thing she could do. She got her phaser, which is very creative, by the way. She probably turned her phaser down to the lowest setting so that all it would really do was heat up the jug when she shot it. That way she wasn't damaging anything, and she made coffee. Now, I'm not a coffee drinker, but a lot of people can't function without coffee and need it. You know, I appreciate that in that moment, she knew there was nothing she could do, so she brought coffee to those who might be able to come up with a solution to help them, maybe help everyone else. And never doubt how useful small niceties like that can be like 
I'm I'm more of a tea drinker. I'm more of a Picard that way. I don't care about coffee. Give me Earl Grey warm any day. But, uh, you know, I'd appreciate that. If I'm in a stressed out situation, there's nothing you can do to help. Bringing me food or bringing me, like, a warm tea, that's enough to at least lift my morale. Maybe stop me stressing as much and let me focus. Like, that legitimately is a helpful thing to do. And it was nice. You know, it was... It's a minor thing, like I said, doesn't really matter ultimately, but it was cool. And I like the creativeness of, she used a phaser, and she was so nonchalant about it, just like, oh yeah, the galley's down, that's okay, I used a phaser, it's phaser coffee, sir. Just so casual. I love it. Um, let's see, so, is there anything else? Uh, Oh, (laughs) there was, at the start, when the cube first showed up, there was a moment where Kirk was getting his medical exam. And Dr. McCoy looks at the wall and he sees the red light starts to flash. I guess in the medical bay, the alert sounds don't go off. Probably so that the patients and people in there don't get woken up or distracted if they're in there. Because obviously, if you're in the med bay, you could be in bad condition. You don't really need to get a headache from the alarm. So red lights still flash, so you're aware of things, but it doesn't go off. Which means while Kirk was mid-physical, mind you, he was sitting on a table at this point, or laying on a table, and with his legs, he was like kicking these two things on the wall. I guess it's just like a cardio test to test out your heart rate when you get moving. (laughs) And the doctor looks over, very clearly sees the red light, looks down at the captain and decides, I'm not going to tell him because he needs to finish his medical. The captain eventually, you know, he finishes with his legs, he gets up and he's wiping his face with the towel and... He looks over and he sees the red line. He's like, damn it, McCoy. You could have told me about the light. You damn, you damn well saw it. And he responds, if I jumped every time my light came on around here, I'd end up talking to myself. <laughs> McCoy has to be the most unprofessional Starfleet officer I think we see in any of the shows. And I love him for it. He's so laid back and casually just like, but it's a, you know, he's got that, it's a red alert. But to him, he's like, yo, there's a red alert every day. Our lives are always in danger. That doesn't mean that I don't have to stop everything I'm doing. I'm in the middle of a medical exam and I thought it was important I get it done. There'll be a red alert tomorrow and one the next day. You'll live. <laughs> you know, he just has that that confidence of just, yeah, the crew knows what it's doing. They'll survive a few more minutes without their captain. I need to get this done because also a, a thing in Star Trek quite often is the captains do not like submitting to medical exams. I'm not big on going to see a doctor, but I feel like particularly in this show, actually in most of these shows, the doctor and the medical officer tends to be pretty good friends with the captain. I'm not really sure, like, I feel it is a medical exam, but you're also just kind of going to spend a bit of time with a friend. Yeah, sure, you got to do some stuff, but, like, who cares? It seems like McCoy and um, Kirk are actually good friends. They sit down, they drink together quite often, they talk. McCoy's on the bridge probably more than any other medical officer I've ever seen. He's always up there making comments and just hanging out with his captain. You know, they're friends. (laughs) Apparently, nobody likes going to see their doctor, even when they're friends. Anyway, tomorrow. Now, I will say, like I said at the start, this is still the seven-day special. I apologize because day six got a bit messed up, you know, yesterday because I got the sidetracked. Tomorrow is the Menagerie, parts one and two. I'm going to, well, tomorrow I go to the gym, and when I come home from gym, I will watch them. I'll sit down with something to eat, and I'll watch both episodes and take notes for the entire thing. And we'll do the two-part episode, the Menagerie, which, like I said... 
is a sequel to the original episode, or the, what do you call it, the pilot episode with Captain Pike and Telosians. I'm not going to say anything more, but it's a pretty cool episode from memory. I'm looking forward to watching it again tomorrow, and I'll see you all next time.